I told Jonathan, I mean, I have to preach after that bumper. Uh, pretty powerful stuff. Well, hey, I want to welcome you into Redbreast Christian Church this morning. We are beginning uh, a new two-week mini-series uh, that is focusing on a song. Uh, it's a song that's known as the Magnificat. And we get that word from the first few verses of Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 46, where Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. I remember the first time uh, I dealt with this passage. It was as I was getting my master's degree from Lincoln Christian University. Uh, the professor, <clears throat> excuse me, sent us this text and he said, You're going to write a paper on Mary's song. Now, I'm a dude. I, songs, I, I, I like them. I love music. But, but there's just something about this thought of, i got to write a paper about a song from Mary that didn't really seem to resonate with me. I, I was thinking it was going to be a lot more flowery than it actually is. And you come to the text and you see, holy cow. There is so much theology packed in to this snippet of time in Mary's life. And so uh, what I want to do is, is go verse by verse, word by word, through this powerful testimony of God working not only in Mary's life, but the lives of all who would come. This is the point of Mary's song. And so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verses 46, and we're going to work through verse 56 over the course of two weeks. But uh, this morning we're going to focus on verses 46 through 50. And so as I like to do every time we start a new series, a new passage, I want you to understand the context surrounding what we're getting ready to look at. And so in Luke chapter 1, uh, what you're seeing is, is these series of events that are leading to a conclusion of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so at the beginning of Luke, you're starting to see this, this period of events that are leading us to the main thing. And so it starts in Luke chapter 1 with the birth of John the Baptist foretold. An angel visits Zacharias and Elizabeth, and even though they're old, past childbearing age, they say, you're going to have a son, and the purpose of your son is to be a forerunner to the Messiah to come, that, that all of history has waited on up to this moment, waiting on when is the Messiah come, your son is going to be the one who ushers him in. And so we see this event happen, and then we move to the next event that Luke records, the foretelling of Jesus' birth. We know that Mary is confronted by an angel, and even though it's kind of the opposite of Elizabeth, Mary is in a younger age, we see that through you, this long-awaited, long-prophesied Messiah will come to be. Imagine that for a moment. That through you, the plan of God for salvation of all of mankind that has been foretold throughout generation and generation. That all of Israel has lived with both an expectancy of, of yes, he is coming, but, but with a question of, but when? And Mary hears the words, now, through you. It's a powerful moment. 
So from this moment that Mary hears that the Messiah is coming through her, we see an interaction between Mary and Elizabeth. And I, I want to read kind of the, the forerunning context to where we're going to go this morning. Uh, back up, beginning in verse 39. As Mary walks into Elizabeth's presence, here is what Elizabeth says. It says, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ear, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. Powerful moment. And so, as we look at this song of Mary this morning, there's a couple things that I think you need to notice. The first thing is this. As we read through this text, what you're going to find is, is that if you would cross-reference it with much of the Old Testament, you're going to find a ton of Old Testament teaching packed into Mary's song. And the point of that is this. Mary is a woman who knows the Word of God. You're going to see references to 1 Samuel. It's known as, 1 Samuel 11 is known as Hannah's song. You're going to see elements of this. You're going to see elements of the Psalms all throughout. And what's an indication for us is that though Mary is young in age, she is a young woman whose life has been saturated with the Word of God. I think in our minds there are times when we, we kind of separate the characters in the Bible and, and we hear these stories and we often think that God has somehow just magically given them these words to say, although they are divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mary is a woman who understands the Word of God. That in her family, that in her, her teaching, that in her community, the Word of God has been saturated into her life. And this is what comes out. God uses her discipline in living a life, knowing, memorizing, and applying the Word of God. So, so here's the, the kind of introductory question for us. Is that the mark of your life and my life? Are we living a life that is saturated with the Word of God? And my, my, I'm not naive. The reality for most of us is no. And yet what we see from Mary is an example of understanding and obeying the promises of God because she's lived a life that is saturated with His Word. I hear so many people say, I just, I just want God to speak to me. <laughs> All the while ignoring the 66 books and letters that he's done so to us. 
You want to hear God speak, get into the word. And so it's, it's with that context in mind that we read what Mary says and see the power that is behind it. So she opens up in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. Some of your versions, depending on which one you have, it may say, My soul magnifies or my soul exalts the Lord. And what Mary is trying to say here is, is this is not a surface level thing that, that with my mouth I, I sing the praises of God, although it is that, but it's not limited to that. What Mary is saying is the deepest most parts of me exist to glorify God. That my life is, is an offering that is meant to magnify and communicate to the world around me the goodness and the majesty of God. This is what your life is called to be. When we, when we think of magnifying, we often think of, of making smaller things big. Like if we take a magnifying glass, we can see something small and see it for what it actually is. And this is what Mary is saying. She's saying, actually, we, we use it more like a telescope. To, to view large things and see as best we can how large they actually are. This is what Mary says our souls, our, our lives, are meant to do. To magnify, to make much of, to glorify God. This is the purpose of your life. Like So many people want to know, why, why am I here? Why, why have I been brought in this time, in this place? What is my purpose? It's this. That if you're a believer, your life is meant to reflect the goodness of God. And to declare to those around you, this is who he is. That he stands alone. So Mary says first and foremost, and you're going to find throughout this song, there's not a lot of Mary in it. That Mary uses this moment not to glorify herself, but to make much of God over and over again. It's, it's about God. She says, my soul, the, the, the innermost parts of me, who I am, exist to make much of Christ. To declare the glory of God. She moves to verse 47 and says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I want to spend a little bit more time on this part. Because uh, there are different teachings on who Mary actually is, depending on what church you go to. Specifically, if you were one that was raised in the Catholic Church, uh, they have a very different view of Mary than we would have. And there's a teaching within the Catholic Church that, that says that it's called the Immaculate Conception. That Mary was one that was born and lived free from the curse of sin. And what I see in this text is Mary absolutely blowing this doctrine to bits. And so the teaching is that Mary is, is one that is sinless. And the teaching would be because after all, the, the sinless perfect savior had to come through a perfect vessel and I, I think as you look back at the genealogy of Jesus you'll see that all throughout the line that leads us up to Jesus it is an absolute wreck 
an absolute mess. And so I think even Mary blows this doctrine to pieces by what she says here. And my spirit rejoices in who? God, my Savior. If you're honest, I think a lot of us view biblical characters the way that maybe our our modern culture views celebrities or or sports stars. We often view them as otherworldly, larger than life, unable to emphasize with the rest of humanity until you meet them. For me, and and this is a, a very, very minuscule celebrity, but, but I've told you guys before, my thing that I love very deeply is Illinois Fighting Illini basketball. My wife would say too much at times. Uh, they had a game yesterday. I stood for the entirety of it about seven inches from my TV. So it's just, but a couple years ago, uh, my family went to, to St. Charles and, and I had forgotten that the Illini were playing an exhibition game against the University of Kansas, and they were playing in St. Charles. And so I was aggravated as we approached the front desk because my son Beckett, uh, he said at the most inopportune time, Dad, i got to go in with you because i got to pee. It always happens in the moments I'm trying to get in and get out, and everything's chaotic, and that's when that happens. And, and so he comes with me to the front desk. I say, hey, let's, let's check in, and then we'll go. And so I, I'm going through everything with the, the clerk there, and, and all of a sudden he tugs on my pants, and he says, Dad, look. And I look over, and who's walking towards me but Brad Underwood, the coach of the Fighting Illini. Now, to me, to you, that's not a big deal. To you, it's like, whatever. To me, like, that's about as good as it gets for me. And so I, I see Underwood coming up, and, and I say, hey, let's, let's talk to him. So we, we talk to him and a couple of other coaches, and, and he walks away, and I think, what a moron. I should have got a picture with him, not of me, but of my son, because it would be weird two grown men getting this picture together. So I use my son. And so I, we walk back over to the restaurant area, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you again, but would you mind getting a picture of my son with, with you? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And, and it was just, I was starstruck, and, and Beckett was starstruck, and it's kind of fueled our, our love of Illini basketball even more. But, but as I walked away from that, what I realized was this. Yeah, he's just a dude. Hey, nice guy, but he's just like me, Right? And so he makes a little bit more money. But other than that, we're very similar. So as we examine this song of Mary, we we come to the realization that although there have been a lot of elevated views of Mary, she's a human. Not perfect. In fact, you, you, you approach this issue of, of her immaculate conception, her being perfect, and we understand that, that what she says herself destroys this argument. This is my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, and it points us to the fact that Mary herself is not removed from the sin and salvation issue that faces the rest of mankind. Mary is a sinner in need of a Savior. In fact, she wholeheartedly recognizes this. And, and, and yet, here's what I, I can't comprehend. She recognizes the truth. 
that because God told her this was the way it was going to be, the child growing inside of her was the Savior that she needed. That's where I can't understand. But she trusts. So here's the question that you may be asking. How does this apply to me? Where where am I in this story? Mary uses a term that I think should speak to all believers here. When she says, my soul or my spirit rejoices. The meaning of that phrase is to praise or to celebrate. And the point that Mary is making here is, is my soul celebrates the fact that salvation has not come through me, but has come through the Messiah. That it's, that it's God alone who has acted. Yes, he's used her as the vessel, but all of the work of salvation is through God. Here's where you come into play in this. What you need to know, and, and maybe you know this conceptually, but what you need to apply to your life is this. You do not and cannot earn your salvation. We enjoy our salvation. I'm going to say it again because I I know you you may hear these things in church and you agree with them conceptually, but then you go out and live your life as though the opposite is true. We don't earn our salvation. We enjoy our salvation. What's the good news of the gospel? Just think about what we focus on at Christmas time. We couldn't save ourselves, so God saved us. We couldn't go to God, so he came to us. This is the good news of the gospel. And the point of all that being, you could not and cannot do it, so God stepped in. Yet many of us believe that we live, we live in such a way that communicates that we don't believe that. Because the reality for everyone is this. Everyone, everyone makes a savior out of something. Everyone. Every single one of us this morning has made a savior out of something. For those who... Maybe you don't say it, but, but you live it. This works-based salvation, and I, I say that as somebody who seems to go back and forth in this in my mind all the time. Like, have I done enough to earn it? i got to remind myself, wait a minute, it's, it's because of Christ, not me. But to those of you who live this way, you, you start thinking, okay, have I attended church enough? Have I, have I read enough of my Bible? Have I been in enough small groups to justify my salvation? And my my question to this that leads us to how incomplete this is, is how much is enough? How much church attendance is enough to earn your salvation? Now, (laughs) hang on. Because what I'm afraid you may hear is, well, Ben just said, don't worry about being here. No, please, come. But how much is enough? In the way of salvation, once a month, this is the average of, of professing Christians, twice a month, 80%, that seems good, 50 weeks out of the year so you can have your two weeks of vacation. You see the fallacy of this. How much is enough? 
If it's Bible reading, now how, much, how much is enough to earn it? The verse of the day that pops up on you version on your phone? A chapter a day? The Bible in a year? Like, where's, where's the line? Again, you can, you can see that all of these are great things, but none of them are what we do to earn salvation. It's all as a result of salvation. Because Christ has come and saved me, I want to fellowship with other believers. I want to preach the word of God. I want to share that with one another. I want to build each other up. Because why? That's what Christ, who has been our salvation, has told us to do. I want to get in his word because he said, this is how I'm communicating with you. This is my infallible, perfect word. If I want to know what God has said, I'm going to where he said it. But you see that this is a great result of salvation, but makes a terrible savior. For those who are, are secular, I don't, I don't need the church. They still make a savior out of something. For some of them, it's, it's good morality. Like I do good things for people that, that the rest of the world would recognize as being good. Or I care about the right social causes. And, and that, that's enough to make me feel like a good person. Well, how much is enough? How many causes should you take on to earn your salvation? How many good things are enough to bridge the gap between you and a holy, righteous God? You see the inconsistencies with this. Even those who would say, hey, I'm an atheist. I don't, I don't believe in God. I still make a savior out of something. In fact, it's my belief that their unbelief, their, their idea that there is no God, there is no eternity, is, is something that is used to pacify the soul. I've made a savior out of it because if I can hold on to this idea that that there is no God and, and there is no eternal life, what I do here and now is just inconsequential. And that's enough to pacify me. So whatever we are, wherever you find yourself, you've made a Savior out of something. And what Mary has said in this passage is that there is a clear recognition and delight in the fact that God has saved her. It is a clear recognition of her sinfulness, her inability to save herself, and her trust that the Messiah that is being knit together in her womb was as much for her as it is for anybody else throughout the course of history. Imagine that for a moment. Verse 48, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For as much as some tend to elevate Mary, Mary herself doesn't participate in this. In fact, this is really the only time she actually addresses herself in this. Everything else is God, God, God. God has done this. God has acted. God is the powerful one. And in this moment when she recognizes herself, what she says is, God has been mindful 
of my humble state. God sees me. God is aware of my circumstances. And, and here's, here's what I understand about our culture and as Christmas time approaches. It has the tendency to magnify whatever has happened the rest of the year. If life has been good in this year, it tends to magnify that at Christmas time. If life has been hard, it tends to magnify that too. If you've lost someone close to you, if you've got a recent diagnosis, if you've got just life circumstances that have been painful and frustrating, Christmas seems to magnify that. And on the other hand, if life has been pretty calm, if your family's healthy, everything seems to have gone well, it it tends to magnify that too. And the point of what Mary says is, is wherever you find yourself in that, God sees you in that. He's not some distant God unaware of the inner workings of his creation. He is intimately involved. So as it pertains to Mary, what I want you to do is consider this glorious burden that Mary is carrying from this point forward. She's an unwed teen mother. Most commentators would say that Mary is somewhere between 13 and 17 years old. She's from the middle of nowhere in Israel. Imagine explaining that to Joseph. Uh, It's not yours, but it's not anyone else's either. It's a difficult conversation. Uh, Imagine explaining that to your family. This, This is the Lord's child. Imagine the difficulty in dealing with the talk among town. Nazareth wasn't a big place. Everyone knows there's talk, sarcastic remarks. Imagine the difficulty in raising the boy Messiah. How do you discipline the one who's come to save you? How do you parent knowing that any time you feel the need to correct the one who lived the perfect sinless life, you're the one that's wrong? This is the reality of this. Imagine later on the heartache of watching your son miraculously conceived knit together in your womb when you feel every movement of this Messiah King. Now you watch him beaten and tortured, nailed to a cross in excruciating pain with a backdrop of mocking unbelievers ringing in your ears. And yet, what Mary knows is even in spite of all of that, he sees me. He's with me. Verse 49. 
for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary uses three attributes of God that it's going to wrap up this section for us this morning. She says, he is the mighty one. Who is the one who has knit this child together? Well, it's the same one who is all-powerful, the creator of heaven and earth. The one who all kings and kingdoms will not outlast, but will all bow down to. He is the one who is above all. And she says, and he's holy. We tend to often think of God as just a better, smarter version of ourselves. In, in trying to, to conceive who he is, we, we tend to put this human spin on it. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll admit he's, he's more powerful than me. He's smarter than me, and, and that's, that's not the point. Yes, he is all those things, but, but even to say that is to limit who he actually is. The point of God being holy, and, and as he's described in such over and over again, is that you would recognize God is not like you. He is set apart. There is an infinite chasm between his greatness and you. And our minds can't comprehend. I, I see it in conversations with people, but uh, a, a recent one that I had was actually just last night with Beckett. We were laying down, and, and Beckett asked this question that, that maybe you've asked or your kids have asked you as well. He said, Dad, where did God come from? And I said, well, buddy, um, he didn't come from anywhere. He's... He's just always been there. You can imagine that did not set well or scratch that itch. So he said, but when was he born? I said, well, buddy, he wasn't. He, there was never a time when God was born. And in his mind, he can't fathom that because everyone he knows and everyone he sees had a time when they were born. And yet now you're telling him that God wasn't. I said, no, he's, he's always been. There's never been a time that has existed in eternity past or eternity future where God will not be. At that point in time, his mind's blown. And so we move to the next question. He says, okay, but so where in my heart does he live? Because he's been told over and over again that, that Jesus lives in your heart. So he thinks that Jesus is somehow sectioned off to a certain piece of his heart. And I said, well, buddy, that's it's kind of a figure of speech. It's, it's more of the fact that, that you, you love Jesus and you, you trust in him. And, and by saying that, you're, you're admitting that you need him and that you're going to live in obedience to him. And I felt pretty proud of myself after that explanation um, because what I expected from him was, I finally get it. Dad, because of your deep theological knowledge and impeccable 
impeccable explanation of this. I have unraveled the mysteries of God. What he said was, oh, and fell asleep. So so this is a continuing conversation I think we're going to have to have. But, but there's, it, it communicates a truth to us that there is something in us that, that just cannot comprehend. That God is not like us. That he is far above us. And yet, this is either the best news for us if we're believers in Christ, or it is the absolute worst news if we have lived in rebellion to him. That the mighty one, who is all-powerful, is also holy, untainted by sin, unable to be in the presence of sin. That does not bode well for those of us who live in sin. And so then the question is, well, where do we go? Because of a God who is not like me, who cannot, cannot even comprehend being impacted and tempted by sin, how, how do I bridge the gap between he and I? And the answer is, you don't. But the good news that Mary lays out at the end of this section of the song is the last attribute that we look at. He is merciful. Knowing she's a sinner. Knowing she cannot save herself, she says this. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation. God is holy He is powerful, and yet he is merciful. As we celebrate moving into the Christmas season, this is what we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that God saw you and I in the depths and depravity of our sin, unable, unable, not not some of you can figure this out and, and some of you won't, unable unable to save yourself. No good work, no church attendance, no, no Bible reading, no, no whatever it is, all the good things you think you can package up and deliver, it is not capable of saving you. It is only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we celebrate this season that God made a way by sending his son, that you could not bridge the gap to God, so God came to you. This is the good news. So so what does it mean for us? Well, it means that you and I should worship him just like Mary with all that we have. Live lies that declare, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in the God of my salvation. Not to earn it, but on the other side of it. Knowing he's the one that salvation is found. Not me, and I'm going to rest in who he is and what he's done. So as we end this time this morning, I guess the question for us is this, is, is, that, is that you? Is this the mark of your life? That our soul magnifies the Lord in a deep love and appreciation for the fact that we could not save ourselves and yet salvation is found in the person and work of his son sent for you. Or are we those who live in open rebellion to that? Either by saying I'm rejecting it wholeheartedly 
We're by buying into the just as dangerous lie that it's about what I can do. We're not obedient for salvation. We're obedient from salvation. Father, thank you for this truth. Lord, would you impress these words on our heart? That as we look at this beautiful song of Mary, we recognize that what Mary understands is that she is a sinner in need of salvation, and salvation has come through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, there is no greater gift than to be seen with the righteousness of your son. Even though we're sinful. There is no greater gift than to know that all of our sin, past, present, and future, if we will trust in Jesus, has been nailed to the cross and has been buried with him. There is no greater gift than to be solidified on the fact that Jesus is God and that he showed it by rising from the dead three days later and sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return to make all things new and to judge the living and the dead. So God, we recognize your power. We recognize your holiness. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize your mercy. Lord, thank you for this example through the words of Mary that is filled with your words. God, may we seek to be a people who trust in you and as a result, delight in our salvation and walk in obedience to your word. Father, thank you for this truth and this hope. It's in your name we pray.